Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. You may have heard of genetic illnesses or diseases that run in a person's family. This happens when more than one person has the same kind of illness that's passed down through genes. One of those genes is called APOL1, which has variations that are linked to an increased risk for kidney disease, particularly in communities of color. In today's episode, we discuss how a clinical research study is looking to understand the effect of APOL1 on kidney transplant outcomes from living and deceased donors, and why it's important for you to be part of this research study if you have the APOL1 gene in your family. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us today as we have an open discussion with the Apollo team um, to learn more about the APOL1 gene, what it is, and how we can use this information to better the patient experience and the kidney community as a whole. My name is Danae, and I'll be your moderator today for our conversation. For context, two years ago, I was told that I'm actually homozygous for the APOL1 mutation, and so I wasn't able to donate to a loved one. Yet, at the same time, in my situation, no one was really able to tell us what this gene was, what it meant for me, my future, or that of my family and my loved one. So today, I am very excited to bring this information to you, as it's the same information that I and my family wish we had when we were going through our journey to finding a donor. So with that, I'll ask the Apollo team to introduce themselves so that we can get a better understanding of the team and each individual's expertise. Hi, my name is Glenda Roberts, and I'm the Director of External Relations and Patient Engagement at the Kidney Research Institute and the Center for Dialysis Innovation at the University of Washington. But more importantly, I am a kidney transplant recipient and a member of the Community Advisory Council for the Apollo Research Team. Hello, I'm Marva Moxie Mims. I'm a pediatric nephrologist and chief of pediatric nephrology at Children's Hospital in Washington, DC. And I am chair of the steering committee of the Apollo study. Hello, uh, thank you for uh, this invitation. My name is Jonah Odom and I'm a heart and lung transplant surgeon who is the uh, chief of clinical transplantation at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, uh, working alongside uh, some of my colleagues at other institutes in the Apollo study. Um, hello, I'm Crystal Lentine. I am a nephrologist and medical director of living donation at the St. Louis University Transplant Center. And I'm also honored to serve as co-PI of Apollo Clinical Consortium Three in partnership with Dr. Dan Brennan from Johns Hopkins. Hi, my name is Sylvia Rosas. I'm an adult nephrologist at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, and I'm the PI of one of the recruitment sites for the Apollo study. So one of the first questions that I have is for Jonah. Um, Jonah, you and your team are working on a research project called the Apollo study. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Maybe give us a bit of an overview as well as what the goal of this project is. Well, the Apollo study is a... Um very, very large uh, study uh, designed to answer the question of whether there are certain uh, high-risk biomarkers that uh, affect the outcome of uh, 
patients of African uh, origin in terms of kidney function. And historically, uh, there have been a number of trials that have demonstrated that uh, African-Americans at high risk for kidney failure have two of these uh, high risk variants or biomarkers, uh, if you wish, uh, and that uh, folk of European and other racial groups do not have it. So it's an important uh, signal. And there's en enough data uh, in the field to suggest that uh, having one or two of these uh, important biomarkers uh, may place the recipients of those kidneys at risk for shorter uh, graft survival uh, after transplantation. And because most of the studies uh, to date have been retrospective, looking backwards, uh, this is designed to look forward and do a rigorous study to actually answer the question as to whether these biomarkers indeed uh, drive and predict uh, worse outcome, worse kidney function uh, in recipients uh, of kidneys uh, that have uh, of African origin. So it's a, it's a huge study and it's quite difficult in the uh, transplant population to do this. There are many, many different stakeholders, the donor hospitals that manage deceased donors that have brain death uh, and are responsible for uh, the procurement then their transplant hospitals, then their patients, uh, and uh, the oversight uh, is broad. And trying to get all these elements uh, to work in, to row in the same direction, so that we can capture these uh, markers in uh, patients of African origin has been a huge task, but uh, uh, one that uh, my colleagues have uh, addressed. Uh, very admirable, I think. Okay, so Marva, can you tell us a bit about what you would say makes Apollo unique? Thank you for that question, Danae. Um, Apollo is unique because of the number of players that are brought to the table to do this study. So it's not like other research studies that you may have heard about where it's the investigators and it's the participants. In this case, because we wanted to capture information about all of the transplants happening in the US, we had to partner with UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing, um, the AOPO, which is the organization, um, the, the overarching organization for the groups that procure organs. Um, the HLA labs, the ones that do the tissue testing to look at matching. Um, we also uniquely have a community advisory council that's made up of their family members that uh, are interested and would be appropriate for giving us advice on the Apollo study. That's great. That's amazing. Um, and also, another question that I have, why do you think that it's been historically quite difficult to reach communities of color, specifically to participate in clinical research? A lot of it, uh, as you may know, and I'm sure that other speakers will address, has to do with, with past um, perceived mistreatment 
that has led to mistrust, quite frankly, of the medical community. And some of it is just perhaps we need to do a better job of explaining to people what's in it for them, for lack of a better term. Why is it important for them to participate in this? What knowledge are we going to gain that's going to be beneficial not only to them as individuals, but to their families and to the African-American community as a whole? That's great. Jonah? Yeah, I think that's a, a very good answer. I think one has to understand that research is subsumed under the general health care system in the United States. And you have to have access to be able to participate. And so uh, many uh, communities of color, uh, rural areas, uh, low socioeconomic uh, status folk, uh, sometimes don't even have the opportunity to participate. They don't even get on the waiting list. So you can't even participate in a transplant study if you're not referred to the waiting list. So it's a very complicated uh, issue related to uh, long-standing uh, built-in structural issues that relate to access equity. That's a really great point. And so a question that I have going off of that is how do we move forward in a way that allows for us to reconcile these issues when we do have such mistrust in the community? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, that's a uh, very insightful question. It's obviously a very difficult question, a question that uh, we in this country have uh, tried for well over two, three, four hundred years to try to solve. But I think it starts with uh, education and communication within our own separate worlds uh, to educate uh, our colleagues, our peers, as well as to educate our patients and our research subjects. So I, as an MD-PhD student, also have many questions, but I'll try to keep them very, um, very general. The first question I have is, when you mention uh, patients of African descent, um, and we specifically talk about African Americans, are we also looking at people who um, are native to Africa, people that are Caribbean? I know that African-American tends to be a phrase that we use generally to group people of color. Um, and so I'm really interested to understand who um, should really be concerned about these biomarkers. I welcome any of my colleagues to join in, but when we talk about uh, recent African origin, uh, it's anyone who from the continent has migrated to any place within the North American continent. And so the variety of uh, uh, migratory paths that have gone through the Caribbean, for example, gone through Puerto Rico, have gone through some of the Hispanic uh, areas. Uh, and in general, in the, at least in the transplant system, uh, the individuals self-report uh, their uh, ancestry and or the medical healthcare team will, upon looking at an individual, tick a box. And so that's the extent to which uh, uh, the data that we have uh, to discriminate who these individuals are. It's not really identified at the genetic or biological level. It's based on self-report and what the uh, 
healthcare professionals uh, have uh, coded as these patients uh, come into the system. Yeah, so I just want to mention that I, I agree with Dr. Odom. So for this study, we used a broad definition. So patients that were, for example, Haitian or Cuban that self-identify, Puerto Rican, wherever they're from, but self-identify as being of recent African ancestry or identify as Black or Africa, Colombian or whatever they, they want. So they would be included in the study as long as they take that they were African-American or, you know, of African descent. Yeah. And I'd like to actually build on that because I think Jonah made an interesting point about frequently healthcare providers will look at an individual and make a determination about what your ethnic background is. And I think a number of my colleagues will share with you that I tell the story often that when I got my uh, DNA results from 23andMe or one of those services, we were surprised to find out that I am only 48% plus or minus of African descent. But anybody looking at me would automatically assume that I was definitely of African descent. So I think as patients, we have an obligation to make sure that we communicate to our healthcare providers how we would like to be identified. That's an excellent point. And I think another thing that, as you mentioned, that another thing I was thinking is that sometimes the way we look doesn't always say a lot about where we've come from. And so would you suggest or how would you suggest physicians to introduce this information to maybe a patient who was biracial or a patient who came from South Asian descent, but maybe um, they could also have this as a, a risk? Or are we ignoring or maybe not providing information to people who don't look as if they're people of color? Um, and essentially, like, how do we equip our physicians with the ability to communicate this information to people who need it? So, Benet, one of the things that I think it's important to emphasize is that race is a social construct, and we have used it as a basis for all types of research. And the reason we need to have more people participate in the Apollo study is because we need to collect more biologically based information so that we can make smart decisions about one, who has the APO1 genes and are likely to be impacted by this, but also to give us information so that when we are looking at organs that are to be donated, we can make a biologically based judgment about which organs to keep or reject rather than just using an arbitrary categorization of race. That's great. I really do think that that distinction between race and ethnicity is always something that's very important to note. And it's also very difficult of how to be able to use that in a way where you're respecting everyone's identity, but also making sure that you can really provide for them the information that they need in order to make the best medical care. Um, and so another question that I have about the Apollo study, maybe on a more basic level, but what is the APOL1 gene? So, Danae, this is a very important question. APOL1 is a gene that was discovered about, I think, I want to say 10 years ago, that found that if you had two risk alleles, these were high risk alleles. So, 
if there were mutations or deletions in this one gene and people that had two of these mutations, so you had to have two, you had to inherit one from your mom and one from your dad. And if you had two, you were more likely to develop certain kidney diseases. You were more likely to develop kidney disease if you had HIV. You were more likely to develop um, go into dialysis or need a transplant if you had some diseases called FSGS, or if you were a lupus patient and you had two of these risk alleles, you also ended up being at higher risk. So basically we identified several diseases that if you had these two risk alleles, you were more likely to end up on, uh, on dialysis or transplant. And it turns out that only people of African descent have this risk allele. So it's been tested in many populations. So even people you know, Asians, whites, et cetera, the likelihood that they have it is very low. And in fact, we know that when they have it, it's because they really have some background, however small it might be, of African descent. So that's where the that's why the APOL1 gene is so important. But it turns out that many African Americans have this gene, but only one. Only 13%, more or less, of the uh, African Americans in the U.S. have the two risk alleles. And if I can continue on that a little bit, Danae, the reason that that scientists think this evolved is that having a single copy of a renal risk variant actually turns out to be protective against African sleeping sickness. And it's only having the combination of two renal risk variants that relates to kidney problems. And it turns out that a single variant is present in about 30 to 40% of persons of African ancestry. Jonah, would you like to add to that? Uh, Yeah, I was just going to add that even though we simply have not seen this in other ethnic groups or racial groups, these high-risk variants, there will be an opportunity to see if there's any spillover in the recipients that are getting genotyped because uh, about half of them of the recipients of these uh, kidneys, which are coming from 100% uh, self-identified uh, folk of African origin, uh, half of them will get genotype. And so we'll know whether th- that half that are non-African, in fact, have one or two of this risk variants. Yeah, and I want to note, sort of add to what Glenda, we, we have looked at the Hispanic population. And if you look at those Hispanics that come from the mainland, the very rarely they have it, 0.1%. But if those in the Caribbean, again, not as a high percentage, but about 1% of them have the two risk alleles. So it's present, but not as common. But it's probably because we're all mixed. Right. That's a really great point. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I think the next question that I have for Sylvia is, how do you think that the results of the Apollo study can really impact future patient care? So right now we use a a, a risk score called the Kidney Donor Profile Index. We call it KDPI for short. And we use that to evaluate organ offers from our deceased donors. And it's based on several factors, including age, history of diabetes, hypertension. And so the way it works is that the index estimates the relative risk of the transplant failing. And and so the lower the number, the better it is. So if you have a, a number that is 15, it means a score of 15, it means that you would be expected to function longer than 85% of all the kidneys donated. And so that's how this score is used. Um, 
and included in that, in that score because we know that kidneys that come from uh, African-American donors don't last as long, there is a certain percentage that is added uh, making the kidney, um, let's say, less favorable. Uh, and we think that maybe it's not really the, the African-American uh, background, but really having these two risk alleles that will really uh, increase the risk. And that's important because right now we do discard a significant number of kidneys because we say, oh, this risk is too high. It's not worth it to transplant. And I think that if we identify that it's really not the, it's really the gene, then we can really appropriately score the kidneys and be able to transplant more patients. And Krista, I, I think this is also a really great segue, but why is Apollo important for the care of living donors? So we've heard a little bit about how, you know, it's important that, you know, this research is there so that we can understand the impact on uh, recipients, but there's also concern for donors. So could you tell us more about that? Well, thank you, Danae, and I really wanted to thank you so much for your personal story and your experiences. You and your family are really exactly what this study is about. But as you know, living donation brings some unique considerations to the practice of kidney transplantation. And in the case of living donor transplant, there are two patients involved who must be considered. The living donor APOL1 genotype may impact the outcomes of the transplant, as discussed by Dr. Rosas for deceased donor transplantation. However, it's not known if the nature of second hits that lead to graft failure are different when an organ is procured from a living person versus a deceased donor. And we should segue that into our discussion of pathophysiology in that having two APOL1 risk variants is not deterministic for any outcome. It's only a risk factor. And what we're understanding both for transplantation and native kidney disease is that there needs to be a second hit. It may be an infection or some other condition or, or other genes that are, are combining. So again, it's not um, known if in the context of living donor, living donor transplantation versus deceased donor transplantation, if those second hits might be different. But um, also of critical concern, of course, and as you understand, is the health of the living donor or the person who derives no medical benefit from organ donation, but gives to help another person. And as in the general population, there are racial disparities in post-donation outcomes. And it's been seen in large epidemiologic studies that on average, black living donors have approximately two to four times the risk of kidney failure in the long-term after donation as white donors. But as emphasized by our colleagues throughout this um, session today, race is a social construct and a portion of this risk may be related to kidney risk variants in APOL1. And so we need to better understand the biologic basis of outcomes to better characterize risk as precisely as possible so that we can better evaluate and counsel living donor candidates and engage in shared decision-making with uh, future living donors and their families. And going off of that, how are Apollo and related studies addressing APOL1 genotyping for living donors and living donor transplant recipients? First of all, Apollo is prospectively enrolling living donors and their recipients. However, Apollo is observational in its design 
and does not impact practice. So what, what's notable is that because this test is available now in clinical practice, that some transplant centers are already using ApoL1 genotyping in their donor candidate evaluation, even though precise risk data is not available, really exactly as you described, meaning that those who are found to have high-risk genotypes are more likely to be excluded both from donation and thus from Apollo in its prospective design. So to overcome this issue for studies and generate some much needed, more precise risk information, we are conducting an NIH-funded ancillary study to Apollo called LITO, or the Living Donor Extended Time Study. And this study is enrolling individuals who donated about 15 years ago before the availability of genotyping in practice, and we're inviting them for home visits, including genotyping, surveys, and other measures. And using this pragmatic design, we can assess the relationship of their genotype and their kidney function from the time they donated to the present, so their post-donation kidney function course, as well as transplant outcomes. And again, with this more precise risk characterization, we hope to better understand when donation is safe versus which donor candidates are truly at high risk for kidney complications. And just briefly, another Apollo ancillary study is being led by the ethics team that seeks to better understand the perspectives of living donor candidates about genetic testing. And we hope that collectively, this research will guide pa patient-centered use of ApoL1 genotyping in the living donor candidate evaluation. My next question is for Glenda. How is the patient voice really able to shape the Apollo study? One of the things that's important about the Apollo study is that we have a community engagement committee. And the community engagement committee has been very instrumental in guiding the Apollo study in terms of governing how organs are used in the study. Even though the law allows researchers to use an organ, if you signed up to be a donor and you said, I'm willing to participate in research, we felt that as a community, it was important to get the next of kin's approval for those organs to be used. Now, that presents a huge barrier in terms of recruitment, but because of some of the historical atrocities that have gone on, we just wanted to be sure that our community feels like, one, they are aware of what's going on with those organs, and two, that the organs are being used in the most appropriate way. So I encourage everyone who is willing to be an organ donor, make sure you have the conversation with your family in advance. Tell them that you're willing to be an organ donor and tell them that you're willing to participate in the Apollo research. Because as Sylvia mentioned earlier, race is one of the criteria that's being used for discarding these organs. And we want to make sure that we get accurate biological data so that we can use it in making a decision about which organs are good organs to be used for transplant. So you can make a difference. Thank you so much for that call to action. Yes, you can make a difference. And so if any of our listeners are interested in taking that next step to make a difference, where can they learn more about the Apollo study and how they can get involved? Well, there are a number of different places that you can go. First, you can go to the ApolloNetwork.org 
just to learn more about the Apollo study itself. And if you're actually interested in participating, I encourage you to email Apollo study at wakehealth.edu. That's Apollo study at wakehealth.edu. Because one of the things that's exciting about the Apollo study as compared to a lot of other studies is that you can participate in this study from anywhere around the country. A lot of times people don't get to participate in studies because there are only a few sites that are involved in the research, but there are OPN transplant centers all over the country. And so we encourage you to sign up and participate in our study. Oh, I did want to add that Apollo is also active on social media. We have a Twitter page and it's called at Apollo Network 13. So please follow us. We also have a Facebook page, the Apollo Network, and even a YouTube channel. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing that new information and some of that new data that comes out. So thank you once again to all of our panelists and thank you our viewers for watching this Facebook Live brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Please stay safe, stay strong and know that you are not alone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast@kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time, and from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.